0: So we're going through the Da Vinci Code. At least we're going through the challenge that the Da Vinci Code presents. In quick summary, and I'm going to make it very, very quick so that you guys know, go to the next slide if you could, Anthony. Week number one, we just kind of introduced what the Da Vinci Code is. You know that my summary view on why we're covering it is a lot of people are going to see the movie more than have read the book. 25 million people have read the book or bought it. But more people, I think, will see the movie and will use it as an excuse not to even consider the claims of Christianity. That's why we're studying it. Because this small band of people in here is going to take on the world and respond. Okay. Last week, we covered one of the main claims of the Da Vinci Code. And that was that Mary Magdalene was chief among the disciples. She was actually the wife of Christ. And we considered the whole notion of Jesus being married. And we went through that whole discussion. We are recording these, of course, so you can have them on CD. Tonight we're going to dive into another claim that the Da Vinci Code makes. And I'm going to set it up this way, because I, you know, the Da Vinci Code makes a lot of claims about Christianity, but one of its central themes is there's a conspiracy that began in the early church to hide the truth. The truth being one, that of course Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene, they had children, and there was a whole line of descent from Jesus. That was one truth they were trying to hide. The other truth that's being hidden by the church, of course, the big church conspiracy, is that there were gospels written that show the preeminence of Mary Magdalene, including her own gospel and some other gospels, and that the church chose not to include these gospels because they told a story that we didn't like. So in other words, the early church fathers had all these gospels to look at. They chose the ones that are in our Bible because they favored the story that they wanted to prevail, and they kind of called heretical the other gospels, and of course, we threw them out. And that's at the heart of the conspiracy is choosing among the different books. Tonight we're going to look at that. Ben's going to walk us through the, the Gnostic Gospels tonight a little bit. What some of them say? Because you are going to hear people say to you, well, wait a minute, isn't there a Gospel that says, and they're going to quote something from one of the Gospels, there's a Gospel that says that Jesus used to kiss Mary on the mouth, and we analyzed that last week, one of the Gospels. Okay. And remember, one of the themes that we've already looked at last week is, no matter, even if you take the Gnostic Gospels as true, none of them say that they were married. At best, they show that he favored her above the disciples, and that maybe, if you read the holes in the text and can fill them in, that maybe he was kissing Mary at some point somewhere. But all the holes in the original manuscript prevent us from really knowing what was going on. But that's if you accept them as true. Tonight we're going to look at why they're not even true. But I just want to make it clear that nowhere does it actually say that they were married. That's not written anywhere in a true gospel or in a false gospel. Okay? You see up here on the screen, it says we're going to take a brief look at inspiration, because we're going to kick off a topic that we're going to start about how did the church decide what's in the Bible and what's not? If the Da Vinci Code is wrong, that there's a big church conspiracy, well, okay, that's great. Let's talk about what really did happen. Tonight, I'm just going to give you a teaser, and I have Ben present his topic on the Gnostic Gospel. Let's go to the next slide, Anthony, if you could. Here's some background. First of all, for those of you who don't know, the original scriptures didn't have chapters and verses. In fact, they didn't even have punctuation. It wasn't until 1227 that we actually broke them down into chapters so that we could cite them more easily. And then finally, when the Bible began to be printed, they decided to add verses so that people can actually refer to certain places and find them more quickly. So that's kind of a more modern edition. That's why sometimes you'll see biblical scholars put verses together and they'll say, actually, if you just take out the verse break, it's read like this. Sometimes people tell you, put it in context, read right through the chapter because the chapter breaks were kind of arbitrary as well, just to help us figure out where things are. Okay. Next slide. What does it mean to be inspired? First of all, how do we know the Bible is inspired? You know that when we spent some time on understanding difficult questions about Christianity, I was talking about the Bible being externally authenticated. We're going to come back to that in the weeks that come. But what does the Bible itself say about its own inspiration? Here are three key verses that biblical scholars use to say that the Bible itself claims it's authentic. Now, I know that if you're talking to somebody who doesn't believe in the Bible, they're just going to say, who cares what your book says? A book can't say it's authentic because the book says so. I I understand that objection. We're not covering that tonight. That's what I mean by external authenticity. We'll talk about that later. Here's what the Bible says. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired. The Greek actually means God breathed. That's the word. you probably heard it a million times in sermons that inspired in this case means God breathed. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. There's the first claim. All scripture. Interesting word about the word scripture when you say all scripture. Well, how do we know what's scripture? And biblical scholars will use each book and each writer because, for example, Paul calls Luke's book scripture, Luke makes reference to something else as scripture. Paul as an apostle writes and says, I'm writing as an apostle, so he makes claims about it being scripture. So when we put the word scripture in quotes, you can actually go through a long trace in the Bible and find all the places where they call things scripture, and that's how we get some of the books. Here's another verse, 2 Peter 1.21. No prophecy ever came by the impulse of men, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. In other words, there's it again. Inspiration from the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians two. Thirteen, And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who possess the Spirit. Okay? Throughout all this movement, you see that basically the Holy Spirit is what's moving here. When we talk about inspiration, what we're talking about is the words themselves, not the author. It's not like Paul was sitting around and was inspired. He looked up and saw like something in the sky was inspired to write. It literally means that the words were inspired. God used the writers to write his inspired words. There are three elements to inspiration. Keep these in mind. The reason I'm bringing them up now before Ben gets up is because I want you to analyze these three things as we listen to something about the Gnostic Gospels tonight. There has to be certain elements to inspiration. How do we know that something is inspired? What does it mean? Other than just God breathe. What does that mean? If you're going to be a theologian, you're going to put it to the test. Here are the three elements that you have to put into the test. One is divine causality. It means that God is behind the scenes. God is the one who's beginning the process. God is the ultimate source of the inspiration. Number two, prophetic agency. The personalities of the prophets were not violated. The word of God was written in the words of men. In other words, God did not like jump into the body of the writer and take over. God did not just say, here, dictate this and just write it down. God gave them inspiration and they wrote it in their own words. That's why when you analyze books of the Bible, you can actually see the personality of the writer coming out. Sometimes they had biases, sometimes they had experiences, and you could see them shading some of the words that they used from their experience or from their background. People study at length some of the Gospels and how they were written and looking at the background of each writer and why they would emphasize certain things and not emphasize others. Because they had a point. They had a point of view. They had a a bend to how they were writing. But God was behind the words, and he was using the writers to use their own words to write them down. Third part, written authority. That means that the final product of God moving and inspiring and men writing them down in their own words, the final product has the authority to be Scripture. Here it says, the final product of divine authority working through prophetic agency is the written authority of the Bible. The Bible is the last word on doctrinal and ethical matters. When you see those three working together, those are the things they're looking for in defining inspiration and understanding that this is inspired and not just some work of fiction. Notice what it says up there, though. Inspiration refers to the words themselves, not the author. What that means, for example, is we know that Peter wrote the letters of 1 Peter and 2 Peter. We know that those words are inspired. But if Peter decided to go out and write something called the history of Jesus, that doesn't mean that it's going to be an inspired work. It may have been and it may not have been. It has to go through this test. Just because Peter wrote it does not mean it's an inspired word of God because it's not the person that was inspired. It was the words that were inspired. God may have moved during twice in Peter's life and he wrote two epistles. If you found an epistle of 3 Peter, you'd have to go through the test and the church did. Now, I don't know if there is an epistle of 3 Peter, but tonight we're going to be looking at Gospels of Thomas, of Philip, Gospel of Mary Magdalene. We're looking at other things that the church rejected. So the first thing you can say is hey, even if those authorship were true, which we don't know if they were, it's the words themselves that have to pass the test, not who wrote them. Because there was a lot of false teaching that was being attributed to people who seemed holy at the time. And you have to look at the words and test the words, not the author. Okay? Next slide. Last thing I want to point out there are some limits on inspiration. The doctrine of inspiration applies to the original writings themselves, not to the copies. This is kind of a difficult concept, but we have to always be looking at the original text because we know that through the years, occasionally, there have been some miscopies made of the text themselves. And we have to be true. God does not spend his whole energy making sure that every copy of the gospel gets out or every copy of the Bible gets out error-free. He inspired the original text. Notice that if the copies aren't inspired, I don't know that the translations can be inspired. And we're going to be talking about that because there are some people who believe that there are certain translations that are more holy than others. You know, and they live and die by a certain translation of the Bible. If the copies from the original manuscript can't be inspired, how can a translation be inspired? All right. The reason I'm setting that up is because in the weeks that come, we're going to be talking about where did the New Testament come from. How did we know which ones were inspired and which ones were not? How did we know that God had causality behind it, that his words were at work, and that man was writing them down? Well, tonight we're going to have to look at some that we know weren't, and maybe you can ask some of these questions in the back of your mind, like, you know, some of them, if, there, if we know that inspiration means that the words are true and inerrant, then I guess if we find some words that aren't true, then that helps us get that book off the list. The Da Vinci Code makes a big deal out of these books, that, you know, we were so conspiring as a church to get rid of them, and they contain all of the truth that you need to know about why Mary Magdalene was the wife of Jesus in his whole line, so... Ben's going to tell us about these books.
1: Gnosticism. It's uh, the religion behind the Gnostic Gospels. And what it gets its name from is the Greek word gnosis, gnosis. And uh, that means special knowledge. And that's the whole basis of the religion. That's the purpose of life is to get this special knowledge. That's how you are restored. That's how you are saved some basic tenets of Gnosticism is there is the supreme divine being that nobody knows. How we know is, I, that, that's kind of what I wondered is, wait, if nobody knows, how do we know? And it, it's beyond us, unknowable. And from this unknowable divine first being emanate other divine beings. So. You have this divine being and then they start emanating. I don't know how they emanate, but they emanate. And the further they get away from the original, the less divine they are until you finally come to what they call the demiurge, which is the God that made our world. And you can see where Really starts to stray from the Old Testament and uh, the Hebrew understanding of God here, and what uh, we, what the Christian Orthodox Gospels are. They consider this uh, demiurge as a sem- somewhat evil God, you know, malevolent God who, uh, and that's why that that's how they explain evil is that that the supreme good being didn't actually make the earth. it was some distant emanation. And that's why our world is imperfect. Now, how do we become restored? How, how do we become saved? As I mentioned before, um, you, need, you need to know the special knowledge. And that comes through a mediating figure like Christ would give you that special knowledge. And the special knowledge is uh, who. The divine, that divine unknowable being is. That's how you finally know him is a meteor comes and tells you. One last thing to men- I wanted to mention about uh, that is be- because of the de- the Demiurge is kind of an evil god and he's the one who made materialism, It uh, there's kind of a separation that says the spiritual is good and the material is is bad, is basically what it gets, gets at. And it's, uh, in philosophy, that kind of a two-nature system is called dualism. So, and what's really interesting about that is it, it kind of goes against Dan Brown's whole idea of the, go- the Gnostic Gospels supporting what he thinks the true story was because he talks about... Um, fertility rituals and worshipping the sacred feminine that involve uh, sexual intercourse and so on. And if, if, the, uh, if the flesh is evil, like the Gnostic Gospels say, it wouldn't really work to fit with his understanding of who Jesus was, if it's really true. Cause basically, Dan says, oh, flesh is good. But the Gnostic Gospels and Gnosticism is saying, Flesh is bad. So it's kind of, it begins to butt heads. There's a, there's a logical disconnect. More of what Dan Brown says, he says that Constantine, Emperor Constantine, who ruled in the 300s, tried to burn the true Gospels. Uh, in the mid-20th century, the true Gospels were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls and Nag Hammadi. The Dead Sea Scrolls and Nag Hammadi, they were, they were um, found in caves and they'd been buried for several hundred years. And um, that's, what, that's where Dan Brown says, we found the true gospels. Uh, he says the Nag Hammadi, the, the gospels found within those collection of writings are the earliest gospels. And he says that the Vatican delayed the publishing of the Nag Hammadi out of fear they, they um, came up with all sorts of ways to uh, to try to stop it they didn't want the Nag Hammadi to be published because then people would know the truth about about Jesus they'd know the truth about Mary Magdalene and how Jesus had married her what's true about what's the truth about behind all these things um, the Dead Sea Scrolls don't actually have any Gospels in them they're all pre-Christian writings so it's really interesting that Dan Brown says that true gospels are found in the Dead Sea Scrolls when all of them were written before Jesus was born. All of, all of them were placed there before Jesus was born. Um, and the Nag Hammadi gospels, he says they're the earliest. Well, the date that the gospels found in the Nag Hammadi were written, these, these copies, written about two, 250 to 350, and they, they're, they're copies of original Greek texts that were written in the 100s and 200s whereas Constantine's fake Gospels were all written before the year 100. So, Dan's wrong that they're not the earliest Gospels. And um, the real reason it took so long, why it took 30 years for the Nag Hammadi writings to be published was because there was scholarly rivalry going on and there was trouble happening in Egypt. in Egypt is where the Nag Hammadi were, Gospels were found. And so all that is what really caused a delay. But Dan Brown believed that the Vatican's powerful enough that it was the Vatican that caused those scholarly rivalries. Next slide. More things that Dan says. He says, the theme of Jesus' marriage to Mary keeps on recurring in the Gnostic Gospels. That's, that's the crux of uh, his, his whole Da Vinci code as... John was mentioning that's the truth that uh, the Holy Grail is Mary Magdalene and that's what uh, the church has been hiding for thousands of years another thing he says is that Peter was jealous of Mary's position as leader of the church and that's what that's part of what led to the cover-up is the church was taken over by men who wanted to dominate and uh, subdue any feminine power within religion And he says that the unaltered Gospel of Mary states that she was to establish the church, not Peter. And what's the truth behind all those? Next slide. That Jesus' marriage is not found anywhere in the Gnostic Gospels. Dan says it keeps recurring. It doesn't occur once. Peter questions some of the strange things Mary said, but nothing is ever said about Mary Magdalene being established as the leader of Jesus' church. There's three particular Gospels that I'm going to focus in on, three of the Gnostic Gospels. I'm going to share a lot of the crazy things that are written in them, and you can, you can uh, decide for yourself whether these are the true, unaltered Gospels that, really, that speak the truth about Jesus, or if there is something else. Gospel of Thomas these are the secret sayings that the living Jesus spoke and Didymus Judas Thomas recorded and he said whoever discovers the interpretation of these sayings sayings will not taste death. If you remember I I said how the gnosis, the secret knowledge is what you needed to be restored what you needed to uh, escape the fleshly prison and uh, return to the spiritual realm. And uh, that, this is an example of that within the gospel. Jesus said, Those who seek should not stop seeking until they find. When they find, they will be disturbed. When they are disturbed, they will marvel and will reign over all. I don't know what they're disturbed about. That saying kind of disturbs me. Jesus said, The person old in days won't hesitate to ask a little child seven days old about the place of life, and that person will live. So, a seven-day-old child holds the key to eternal life. Jesus said, Lucky is the lion that the human will eat, so that the lion becomes human. And fall is the human that the lion will eat, and the lion still will become human. Jesus said, This heaven will pass away, and the one above it will pass away. Now, according to Dan Brown. These are the original Gospels. This is what he wants you to believe. The church has been trying to hide. The dead are not alive, and the living will not die. During the days when you ate what is dead, you made it come alive. When you are in the light, what will you do? On the day when you were one, you became two. But when you become two, what will you do? It's got a good rhyme. I like the rhyme. <laughs> yeah. Next slide, Anthony. The disciples said to Jesus, "We know that you are going to leave us. Who will be our leader?" Jesus said to them, "No matter where you are, you are to go to James the Just, for whose sake heaven and earth came into being." Wow. That's a cool guy. That heaven and earth came into being for James the Just. So here we have an example of who they're supposed to go to for leadership, but it's not Mary Magdalene. I think Dan's leading us a little astray. Jesus said to them, If you fast, you will bring sin upon yourselves, and if you pray, you will be condemned. And if you, go, and if you give to charity, you will harm your spirits. <laughs> <laughs> See, See, John, Jesus really was a Republican. If you do not fast from the world, you will not find the Father's kingdom. Wait! We're supposed to not fast. We're supposed to, God, how are we supposed to do it? No wonder why you need the special knowledge, because if you don't have the special knowledge, you can't read this. If you do not observe the Sabbath as a Sabbath, you will not see the Father. Next slide. His disciples said, When will you appear to us, and when will we see you? Jesus said, When you strip without being ashamed, and you take your clothes, and put them under your feet like little children, and trample them, then you will see the Son of the Living One and you will not be afraid. Okay, this is the first one that starts to actually sound like it defends some of the things that Dan Brown writes in his, in his writing, some of the crazy rituals. Jesus said, I am the light that is over all things. I am all. From me, all came forth. And to me, all attained. Sounds pretty good. Sounds pretty good. Until split a piece of wood, I am there. Lift up the stone and you will find me there. Yeah, that's good Eastern mysticism there. Next slide. Jesus said, the Father's kingdom is like a person who wanted to kill someone powerful. While still at home, he drew his sword and thrust it into the wall to find out whether his hand would go in. Then he killed the powerful one. <laughs> yeah, you notice that I skipped from 98 to 114. Well, and you're thinking, well, what about the context? There is no context. They're all this random. From one to the next, they're all random. They're all just sayings. There's no story. There's no historical account like in Constantine's fake gospels. This is, I think this is actually where they got the the script for Life of Brian. And this, this is the... I think this kind of puts a nail in the coffin this last one this puts the nail in the coffin to dan brown when he says that mary magdalene was going to be the leader of the church simon peter said to them make mary leave us for females don't deserve life i think it means eternal life jesus said look i will guide her to make her male so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males for every female who makes herself male will enter the kingdom heaven John and I didn't know how to break it to you ladies (laughs) and we just finally said all right when we talk about the Gnostic Gospels we'll let them know because that's where it's revealed that you all have to become men to be saved that's all for the uh, gospel of Thomas I know you love that one it's getting better we got the gospel of Philip or as I like to call him Felipe Okay, light and darkness, life and death, right and left, are brothers of one another. They are inseparable, because of this, neither are are the good good, nor evil evil, nor is life, 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 nor death, death. For this reason, each one will dissolve into its earliest origin, but those who are exalted above the world are indissoluble, eternal. Does that have any resemblance to anything you've read in the Old Testament? That's uh, one. That's one thing I, I look at when I, when I was looking at the Gnostic Gospels versus um, Constantine's fake Gospels, is how much of a leap it is to go from one from from the Old Testament to our Gospels or to go to these Gospels. I don't think you can reconcile the two. I don't think you can reconcile the Old Testament with these Gospels. That's my opinion. One single name is not uttered in the world, the name which the Father gave to the Son. The Father, this, again, this is, this is referring to that, um, that beginning divine being that we don't know the name, but then he told the Son the name. And that's how we're going to be saved, is if we know that name, and then we, we have knowledge of him. It is the name above all things, the name of the Father, for the Son would not become Father unless he wore the name of the Father, those who have this name know it, but they do not speak it, but those who do not have it do not know it. Seems pretty simple. Don't have it, don't know it. Know it, you have it. I've got to read this one. This God is a man-eater. For this reason, men are sacrificed to him. Before men were sacrificed, animals were being sacrificed, since those to whom they were sacrificed were not gods. Those who say the Lord died first and then rose up are in heir. For he rose up first and then died if one does not first attain the resurrection he will not die yeah that does that make any sense no okay i didn't think so next slide about the flesh these these are all quotes about why about how the flesh is evil and how and the reason i wanted i wanted to emphasize these is because the i mentioned the logical disconnect between dan brown saying that Jesus and Mary were... just had this... basically a fertility cult going on that would worship the divine feminine and ultimately sex. And how it wouldn't make sense for the Gnostic Gospels to promote that since they looked down on the flesh and they looked down on those sort of things. And a lot of Gnostics were believed in uh, an asceticism that refrained from sex. And... And the quote up there, that's basically, it says, No one will hide a large valuable object in something large, but many a time one has tossed countless thousands into a thing worth a penny. Compare the soul. It is a precious thing, and it came to be in a contemptible body. Great is the mystery of marriage, for without it the world would not exist. Now the existence of the world... Oh, and all the uh, brackets and ellipses, that's where there's holes in the text, and we don't have... We don't know what it says. And the existence of marriage, think of the relationship for it possesses power. Its image consists of a defilement. Scholars agree that it's what that passage is getting at is that sexual relations are defiling. And so, wait, Dan Brown says... Fertility, cult, good. Gospels of, uh, Gnostic Gospels say sex, bad. They don't fit together. When, Abraham, when Abram, blank, that he was to see what he was to see, he circumcised the flesh of the foreskin, teaching us that it's proper to destroy the flesh. Again, you know, flesh, bad, spirit, good. Uh, next slide. Okay, Gospel of Mary Magdalene. Will matter then be destroyed or not? Oh, one, one thing I'll mention about this is, there, this is where the gospel of Mary starts of what we have. Will matter then be destroyed or not? The Savior said, all nature, all formations, all creatures exist and with one another, and they will be resolved again into their own roots. For the nature of matter is resolved into the roots of its own nature alone. The Savior said, there is no sin... But it is in you who make sin when you do the things that are like the nature of adultery, which is called sin. That is why the good came into your midst, to the essence of every nature, in order to restore it to its root. Then he continued and said, That is why you became sick and die, for you are deprived of the one who can heal you. Matter gave birth to a passion that has no equal, which proceeded from something contrary to nature. Then there arises a disturbance in its whole body. That is why I said to you, be of good courage. And if you are discouraged, be encouraged in the presence of the different forms of nature. Huh? Next slide. Chapter 5. But they were grieved. They wept greatly, saying, How shall we go to the Gentiles and preach the gospel of the kingdom to the son of, of the Son of Man? If they did not spare him, how will they spare us? Then Mary stood up, greeted them all, and said to her brethren, Do not weep and do not grieve, nor be irresolute, for his grace will be entirely with you and will protect you. But rather, let us praise his greatness, for he has prepared us and made us into men. When Mary said this, she turned their hearts to the good, and they began to discuss the words of the Savior. Peter said to Mary, Sister, we know that the Savior loved you more than the rest of of women, Tell us the words of the Savior, which you remember, which you know, but we do not, nor have we heard them. Mary answered and said, What is hidden from you I will proclaim. And she began to speak to them these words. She said, I saw the Lord in a vision, and I said to him, Lord, I saw you today in a vision. He answered and said to me, Blessed are you, that you did not waver at the sight of me. For where the mind is, there the treasure is. And it goes on to something very, very unintelligible, so I skipped all that. And the reason I, the reason I included such huge text from here is this is uh, Dan Brown's baby here, um, the, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, because he says in this Gospel is where Jesus said that Mary Magdalene was supposed to be the uh, leader of the church. So, so she goes in and she says this, long, very weird, esoteric thing that makes less sense than anything else we've read. But Andrew answered and said to the brethren, say what you wish to say about what she has said. I at least do not believe that the Savior said this, for certainly these teachings are strange ideas. Peter answered and spoke concerning these same things. So apparently there's two sane people in all the Gnostic Gospels. He questioned them about the Savior. Did he really speak privately with a woman and not openly to us? Are we to turn about and all listen to her? Did he prefer her to us? Then Mary wept and said to Peter, My brother Peter, what do you think? Do you think that I have thought this up myself in my heart? Or that I am lying about the Savior? Levi answered and said to Peter, Peter, you have always been hot-tempered. Now I see you are contending against the woman like the, like the adversaries." But if the Savior made her worthy, who are you indeed to reject her? Surely the Savior knows her very well. That is why he loved her more than us. Rather, let us be ashamed and put on the perfect man and separate as he commanded us and preach the gospel, not laying down any other ruler or other law beyond what the Savior said. And when they heard this, they began to go forth, proclaim, and to preach. And that's what the basis for Dan Brown to say that Mary Magdalene was supposed to be the true leader of the church.
0: The Gospel of Mary seems to be the one that can carry the most Mary because it actually has the same writing styles as the other Gospels and and contains all the words. I would have loved to see what was uh, after the first reading that you had to see what it actually went into because. If, if I was reading this, and I didn't know that this was not, you know, divinely uh, like, hmm.
1: inspired, I would, I would be led to believe that this was actually following the format of the first
0: world. You know, it's an interesting comment you make, because when I spoke last week about this passage, when I read it, I had the exact same feeling. In fact, Levi here is supposed to be Matthew, it's original Jewish name, Levi. It sounds so much like our scriptures, but I want to go back and point out a couple things in the Gnostic Gospels. Anthony, not to make you run around back and forth, but can you go back to a couple slides? Look at the Gospel of Mary carefully, and there's a couple things that when he's talking about sin... The Savior said there is no sin. There is no sin. What they're really referring to here is a Gnostic dualism that goes on where the spirit is good, the material flesh is bad. So he's almost saying, like, you have no sin, but because you dwell in the flesh, you do sinful things and it becomes sin. That's right there, the heresy of Gnosticism. That's what the early church fathers were writing against and rejecting. You know, that's where we originally adopted the version of original sin, that you are tainted by sin from your very nature, from your forefathers in the garden. We cannot escape sin. The idea that part of you is good and spiritual and that you just somehow give in to the flesh... Jesus rejected that. Even when the rich young ruler came up to him and said, good master, he said, hey, no one but God is good. You all fall short. You're all tainted with original sin. So you start right there. I just want to point out that even in the parts that sound kind of scriptural, this is scripture, quote unquote, written by a heretical movement that sounds very close to it. But I agree that when you get to that part where they're talking about Peter and they're going back and forth, Sounds pretty close. The most convincing word to me is when Levi says, you've always been hot-tempered, Peter. I mean, it's like, man, you just, you're just you nailing him, you know? There's the early church fathers, which, by the way, defined as people who came right after the apostles forward. They were fighting Gnosticism in their writing. We have their writings. So for a long time before we went to Nag Hammadi and actually were able to discover the, the true text of the Gnostic Gospels, We had a pretty good idea of what they said, because you have people arguing against them and quoting them, not in full, but saying, you guys say this, and this is the truth. So we knew what both sides of the argument were. Then suddenly we discovered the actual text, and we were able to read them and go, ah, okay, so now we have both sides a little bit better, and we could see what they were railing against, because obviously, even though we didn't have them, these things were circulating in wide circulation among the people who believed in this particular heresy. Ryan, you asked about how much Dan Brown believes this. You know, he's done such a good job of researching. But unfortunately, when he comes to the Gnostic Gospels, his research falls a little bit short because he's actually done enough research to discover these passages, which surprise most of us, but not enough to actually apply them correctly. You know, Dan's view of what's going on in the world is that pagan religion was always focused on the feminine. And Christianity is now focused on a God, the Father, and a Son, and it's becoming a masculine religion. Constantine in 300 and something is faced with a decision. Do we go with the feminine, pagan religions that Rome has essentially adopted for its tenure on the earth, or do we go with Christianity, which is now becoming a male-dominated religion? Of course, he says in the book that Constantine, betting on the future, because he knows Christianity is about to overtake the empire, (coughs) bets on Christianity. And to destroy any remnants of the pagan, he has to destroy the Gnostic Gospels and the proof that Mary Magdalene was the heir apparent of the church. I told you last week there's a couple errors with that logic right from the beginning. Yes, it's true the Catholic Church has always maintained that Peter was the first pope and the head of the church, but there's a problem with that biblically. Even though Jesus told Peter, upon this rock I will build my church, what he was really saying in those words is upon the rock of you proclaiming that I am Christ I will build. Peter was not the head of the first church, James, which which was referred to in the Gnostic Gospels here as James the Just, James the brother of Christ was the head of the church in Jerusalem. And Paul apparently had more authority than Peter in some cases because he rebuked Peter on some occasions and told him, dude, you're wrong about this whole concept of becoming Jews before you convert into Christianity. Nevertheless, from a Catholic point of view, Peter is the first pope of the church. So therefore, when you read this passage, which is on the last slide, Anthony, if you go back to the last slide, between Mary Magdalene Peter, Levi, all of them, it just sounds so beautiful. And Dan does enough research to find it and gloms onto this thing where they're saying, Peter, you're so hot-tempered. If he loved her more than us, and that's enough. That's enough for for the Da Vinci Code right there. That somewhere in the existence of the Gospels, true or untrue, there is a Gospel that says that he loved her more than the disciples. And he builds his conspiracy theory on that. So he's not, because remember, if you heard the first talk I did about the Da Vinci, the most important thing Dan Brown adopts is he believes that no religion is true. So we're dealing with alternate mythologies. We're not looking for truth here. In the Da Vinci Code, the whole thing boils down to this one sentence where the female protagonist says, don't you think we should tell the world that Christianity is not true? And and his character in the book, which is really, in my opinion, Dan Brown in disguise, says, but no religion is true. It's only a problem when you treat it as true, which is a direct shot at Christianity. Only those flippin' idiots who believe their religion is true are the problem. Everybody else knows their religion is not true, and that's just life. Man makes religions. Man creates mythologies, and we just play with them. So in his world where no religion is true, there's the Catholic myth. There's the Mary Magdalene myth. And the Catholic Church has tried for centuries to bury the Mary Magdalene myth because they preferred a male-dominated religion with priests and monks and fathers and sons over a religion that would have worshipped the sacred feminine, the pagan, and had Mary as the heir apparent, the one who he loved even more than disciples. That's the essence of the Da Vinci Code right there. Just that the Church covered up that truth, quote-unquote. Ben said something very interesting during this talk that I want to highlight. He said that his test, one of his tests for realizing why the Gnostic Gospels were so crazy, and by the way, he did a great job of picking out the passages that really make them look dumb. That was great stuff. But he said this, that he he, he used in his mind a test of how well they fit with the Old Testament. One of the things we're going to be discussing next week when we talk about the canon is, one of the most amazing things about the Bible is this. 40 different authors wrote the 66 books that we have, and all of them appear to be unified in theme about sin and the prospect of salvation through a Messiah, Jesus Christ. I don't think you could get 40 different authors to write anything and agree that carefully, even about a more narrow topic, not a topic like religion, which is so broad. So if you have the Old Testament leading up to a certain theme, and the big, like, da da it's supposed to happen in the New Testament, and all of a sudden you take this sharp left turn and veer off into some weird la-la land like the Gnostic Gospels do. That's probably one of the indications that we don't have a complete Bible if we were to include them. If you have 40 different authors on the same theme, the same ideas, they're all coming from the same place, they're all internally referring to each other as Scripture. Paul is citing the Old Testament. The Old Testament is prophesying about the New Testament, Luke is writing about certain things. Peter is citing Paul's letters. I mean, this is all going on in the New Testament. If you look for these verses, they're all there. Or even Peter is saying, read the epistles of our brother Paul as if they're, you know, scripture. And then all of a sudden you get these things, which aren't even mentioned, talked about, discussed, that would vastly change the theme of the Bible. That's one of the reasons that they're rejected. So I have any other questions? Give Ben a hand. That was awesome, wasn't it? I think so. Next week, we're going to look a little more carefully about the test for canons and things like that. We're going to go a little bit more. I know this is a little bit dry. That's why I was kind of glad that Ben made it a little bit humorous with some of the crazy things that are in there. You know, talking about inspiration and the theories of inspiration is the whole word true, part of the word. I know it's a little theological and a little strange, but you know what? I want you to just think about this one question. If somebody asked you, how do you know what books are in the Bible and which weren't? How did they figure it out? I think you guys need to know the answer. You know, we claim that the Bible is the Word of God, and most of us, including me probably right now, without reading the rest of the books I've got stacked up at home, couldn't give you a very concise and true answer that was historically accurate about how they figured it out. We need a good answer. So, yeah, paper, rock, scissors. But, you know, I hear a lot of goofy answers, and that actually might be right. I don't know. We're going to find out next week. So, All right, let's do a little bit, let's do some closing worship since we've got a, like a, such a cool team this week.